Welcome to Life Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Sakari. Good morning. My name is Frank Sakari, and you are listening to Life-Altering Events. Today, we're brought to you by a group called the Tag Team. Now, this is a collaboration of the Abraham Group, which is headed by the marketing genius Jay Abraham, who has increased the bottom line of over 10,000 clients by over $21 billion in my company, Life-Altering Events, who are experts in business organizational development, as well as finance and scaling of organizations. Now, the tag team members, we've all reached a point in our life where we want to see the next generation of businesses thrive. This is a very elite and exclusive program for entrepreneurs who are looking to make an impact in the business world. We're simply looking for the best. Email me at franksakari at gmail.com for application details. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we are still, the entire world is experiencing a life-altering event at the same time. COVID-19 has changed just about everything we see, everything we do, and everything we say. How are you dealing with this separation and isolation? Most people I talk to are getting restless, they're bored, they're frustrated, and they're depressed. But what if you already have an anxiety or depressing issues? What if your home life is dysfunctional? What if you're struggling after the, with the after effects of trauma, be it physical, mental, or emotional? What if your money's running low? What if you don't know if you're going to go back to work or when you're going to go back to work? This crisis presents us with opportunities to seize the moment and make a difference in our life. We have a choice. We can choose to fall apart or we can choose to find the courage to pick up the pieces and start moving forward toward better times and better people. Remember this, ladies and gentlemen, it is never too late to have the life that you want and you deserve. Now, if this crisis has affected you to the point where you have a life-altering event that would inspire others, send me an email. Go to life-altering events page and voiceamerica.com and send me an email and tell me how this has impacted your life, how you've addressed it, where you are now, and the impact it's had. We'll review it for content, and if it fits well into the program, we'll contact you about using it in a future broadcast. So let me share your story with our 150,000 listeners in 23 countries. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to talk about facing the monster. And this is moving from mental hellness to mental wellness. Now, depression is often the elephant in the room. We all deal with depressions many times throughout our life. And this monster moves in for many, many reasons. Maybe we got passed over for a promotion or a marriage or committed relationship ended. Our job was eliminated or reduced by this virus. We had a death of a loved one. Our baseball season hasn't started yet. There are many reasons for depression. Some of it we get over very quickly. Some of it we never get over. What we're going to focus today on today is on the most severe form of depression. Now, this monster even has a name. It's called clinical depression. 
and it is a pervasive illness. And the Mayo Clinic reports there are over 3 million cases of clinical depression a year. So what is this monster? One description is a mental health disorder that is characterized by persistently depressed mood or loss of interest in activities causing significant impairment in your daily life. Now, this monster is not limited to any particular group, race, financial status. It doesn't matter. It does not play favorites. And my guest today, David Woods Barkley, has lived this. Let me tell you a little bit about David. He had what many people would consider the near-perfect life. He had a successful business. He was very well-respected. He had many associates. But the monster lurked just below the surface. Now, I can't do David's story justice, so I'm going to turn this over to him. David Woods Barkley, welcome to Life Altering Events. Good morning, Frank. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. That incredibly kind introduction and how you set up the reality and the pervasiveness of this, of the monster. Uh, And I think you described it beautifully that the monster plays no favorites, that he is in fact radically inclusive in trying to inflict ultimately, which I believe is his goal, is to to kill people uh, one by one across all demographics, across all boundaries globally. Now, David, I, you and I have had a long conversation. I've watched your, um, your TED Talk. Now, I can't even come close to doing your story justice, so please share this story with our listeners. So, I think we've all had the experience where two days, back-to-back days, are, are radically different. How the first day can be average, ordinary, mundane, kind of typical, and yet the very next day, the very next day in your life is the complete polar opposite, that it is anything but typical. And I think we've all had that. Now, on the one end, we're talking about the difference between a Sunday and a Monday, but I'm talking about, per the the beautiful title of your show, A Life-Altering Event. And for me, there are two days that are perfect examples of that, August 30th, 2011, and August 31st, 2011. Now, I can recall the 30th and tell you most likely what I was doing. I remember my vocation at the time, but there's no emotion. There's no visceral response. There's no overwhelming feeling that comes over me when I think about the 30th. But when I think about the 31st, not only can I tell you everything that I was doing chronologically, but I can tell you how I feel. In fact, I can present presence those feelings even here more than eight years later. Because, in fact, the 31st of August, a little more than eight-plus years ago, was, in fact, like no day I had ever experienced. Because on August 31st, 2011, I was going to kill myself. That was the day that the monster, known for me as clinical depression, had finally, after trying for close to 40 years, convinced me on that dark and awful day of this whole host of awful lies that he continues to tell to my brothers and sisters in the world who live with this awful condition. On that day, the monster convinced me that I was weak and stupid and ugly, that I was pitiful, that I was grotesque, that I was, that I was an embarrassment, that I was a burden, that I was useless, that I was worthless. And the most damning lie, that 1% towards the majority, which had me begin this walk towards mental illness, this walk towards death, was the belief on that day, while illogical, 
I believed on that day that everybody in my then life, my former bride, Deanna, my family, my friends, I believed on that day that their lives would improve exponentially in the wake of my death and the absence of my grotesque and pitiful existence. And I remember, Frank, on that morning, and I live in Northern California, about 30 minutes east of Sacramento, and at the end of August, there is no chance of rain. And I remember very clearly walking out, and I remember looking up at the sky, and it was an artist's rendition, almost a Michelangelo-esque painting. The sky was this brilliant blue, and I think back now and have the realization that my senses, all five, were more heightened and alert than I'd ever experienced in my life. And, and I think back now and it was like my, I was mentally trying to take pictures of this life experience to take with me whatever is next, whatever that is, maybe. And at one point, I walked back inside, sat down at my computer, typed out a suicide note, and then without telling anybody where I was headed, got in my red dodged Dakota pickup truck and made the short drive from my home in a little town called Penryn to the Forest Hill Bridge. Now, most people don't know about the Forest Hill Bridge, but the Forest Hill Bridge is the fourth tallest bridge in our great country. The Forest Hill Bridge is 500 feet further off the ground than its more famous cousin in San Francisco. The Forest Hill Bridge stands 730 feet tall over the North Fork of the American River. And made the short drive, and I had already picked out a spot. This brings up an important point, that suicide is almost never spontaneous. By that point in my life, I had been plagued not just with the feelings of clinical depression and the awful parts that we'll talk about later, I'm sure, but I had thought about killing myself literally thousands of times, and I had made this trip to the bridge in, in almost a scouting way that I had imagined it so clearly that this was the day that I chose to do it. And so I knew where I was going to park my vehicle, close enough where it would be discovered, but far enough where it would not cause harm to anybody else. Brought my vehicle to arrest, turned off the engine, and then reflexively put my hands on the 10 and 2 position on the steering wheel, closed my eyes, took this deep breath, opened my eyes, reached over to the passenger seat where I took that suicide note, placed the note on the center of the dash, took the keys out of the ignition and placed those in the center of the note, exited the vehicle, and then turned slightly to my right just to make sure I'd left the door unlocked, turned back, crossed over the road, and then walked down to the closest part of the bridge. Now, the bridge stands just about a half a mile long. And the view, if you Google the Forest Hill Bridge, the view from either side is spectacular. It's, it's stunning. It's, it's majestic. But I resisted the temptation to look to right or left. I resisted temptation to make eye contact with the drivers who were passing by and instead focused on a singular light post that stands right at the midpoint, that, that highest, the apex point of the bridge. And just focused on there, nothing else, just focused, became captivated by that light post. And step by step, very deliberately, methodically made my way to the midpoint. And then turning to my left, again, without, res without lifting my eyes up, I pressed my body up against what was then a four and a half foot suicide barrier, a barrier that has been since been heightened to six foot one. And I bent over and I focused on, on the North Fork of the American River and there was a, a dark spot 
and it became completely fixated to the extent that everything else disappeared, including the experience of time and space. And I mention that because I can't tell you how long I was in that space. I have no idea. But thankfully, it was long enough for a passing driver to act on a feeling we've all had, an experience that we've all had, where we look upon a scene and say to ourselves, something's not right with this picture. And oftentimes, myself included, we just let it go. But on this fateful day, divinely, serendipitously, this person picked up her phone and called 911 and a first responder, these first responders that we are honoring right now, this man approached me from the left-hand side and initially established contact, which is a logistical process. But then he created connection, which is life-saving because connection creates hope and hope saves lives. And I was taken off that bridge into an emergency room, then ultimately to a psych hospital where I would spend the next 15 days. And when people, Frank, found out where I was and why, they were shocked. They couldn't get their head around it. It made no sense. And instead of seeing me as clinically depressed or suicidal, people saw me as the happy and contented co-director of a large, nationally recognized animal sanctuary. This extraordinary place that my former bride and Deanna and I ran that was home to as many as 100 animals at any one time. 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine pot-bellied pigs, goats and sheep and ducks and geese and bunnies and birds, this replica of the big ark, but here on dry land. And for animals to come to this extraordinary place, they had to fit into one of four categories. They were very old, very sick, they had some sort of special need, or most were at the end of life. We were primarily a, a hospice. And on June 2nd, 2010, as we became better known in this unique place, we doing no adoptions, we instead allowing animals to make their transition, we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today. And mention that mostly to honor my former bride and her brilliance, but also to to say probably the most important thing in this honor with you this morning, Frank, to tell you is sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen. Sometimes great despair and soul-crushing agony lies just behind the forced smile, a distracting joke, or as you so beautifully put this morning, a seemingly perfect and ideal life. Who wouldn't want to run an animal sanctuary? And because of that, nobody, not even my former beloved, had any idea the degree to which I was suffering and just 14 short months after the mountaintop experience of being in USA Today, there I was on a dark spot on a tall, tall bridge, one short movement away, beyond which there is no coming back. But thankfully, divinely, serendipitously, miraculously, my life was saved. And on a day I thought would be my last day alive, it was instead the first day of a new life and the first step in what you said this journey that I continue on away from mental hellness and into the experience of what I believe is our birthright. Mental health is not some privilege of the rich and famous. We are born into this life experience with the right, no matter what, to experience mental health. And that is where I am today. And David, when that first responder approached you, what was your initial reaction? Was it Fear? Was it, were you grateful? Were you upset? Tell the people what you went through. So 
I didn't, so because I was so fixated, I didn't even notice this person at first. And I'm blessed to speak to thousands of police officers and have been over the last eight years and continue to speak to them on a regular basis as part of what they call their CIT training, which is crisis intervention training. And this first part in this establishment of logistics, the officer had called out to me. And so it it brought me out of this trance-like state. And I wasn't fearful. I wasn't annoyed. I just, I was still intent. Like, it doesn't matter what you're going to say because I would imagine you're here to dissuade me from what I'm about to do. But I understand you have a job to do, but I really am not interested in that. But here's, this, here's where this person, this amazing soul, leverage, what I say, curiosity to lead to a path of understanding. Because nothing bad happens in understanding. And I believe, in fact, Frank, that our most direct path to overcoming the fears that we have about mental illness is to leverage the power of curiosity to create understanding. Because in my opinion, the opposite of fear isn't calm. The opposite of fear is understanding. The more we understand, the less we fear. And here's what this amazing soul said to me after this establishment of contact. His first, first words out of his mouth after that was, David, what does it feel like to be depressed? And I remember, Frank, in that moment, everything decelerated. It slowed down. Because... No one had ever asked me that question, not because people maybe didn't think about it, but it's a counterintuitive question, the thought, if any of us pose a question to create the space for somebody to talk about their most acute experience of despair, of hopelessness, of grief, everything that's happening in the situation now, we have this fear, understandably, that we're going to push them into a more acute experience. And I'm here to tell you the exact opposite is true. Because we as human beings, again, without judgment, I say this, we have this fear. We don't realize that when we create this safe place, when we come to realize the truth of the great Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who says our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts and other people, when we do that, be it on a tall, tall bridge, on a dark spot, on a tall, tall bridge, or over lunch, or even over Zoom, It is so powerful. It may, in fact, be the single most powerful thing that we can do. Ladies and gentlemen, this first segment has gone way too fast. We're going to take a break here, and we're going to be back with David Woods Bartley. And these next two segments are going to be better than the first one. Don't go away. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. 
Frank Sicari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Frank Sakari, and we are talking to David Woods Bartley. And what a story. On August 31st, 2011, David was standing on, at the top of the Forest Hill Bridge. Anybody in Northern California knows where the Forest Hill Bridge is. It's 730 feet tall. He was going to commit suicide. And he was stopped by a passerby. And he just told that story, and it will send chills down your spine. David. You and I have talked a few times. When, you, when people listen to you speak, no one would ever believe that you had, that, that, that this monster had such a grip on you. Is anyone ever really cured? Yeah, that's a great question, and I, a couple things. Um, it's important to note, I, I still live with this condition, so maybe that's the most direct response to your question. And, and you put it perfectly at the beginning of the show in which, there's a distinction within the paradigm of depression between situational depression, and, and many out there are unfortunately experiencing that now. And it's also important to note there's a big difference between sadness and depression. Depression is a larger paradigm in which the experience of sadness can occur, but we can also be sad. And for me, the distinction is, and I think this is common for most of us who suffer from this, is one of the inherent things that the monster is able to create in terms of an, a, a, an awful negative illusion is a sense of worthlessness, which rests on a foundation of acute self-hatred that I still live with this and I still have my days. And in fact, when the epidemic really began to gather unfortunate momentum, all of my speaking engagements got canceled, like many other speakers have had to experience. And, and I fell into a horrific depression, the likes of which I've not had in the past eight years, and got into a place of, of active suicidal ideations. Now, I'm fine. I was fine. And it 
my wellness plan is all about taking care of body, mind, and spirit. So is it possible to become truly well for a long period of time? And yes, it is. And like diabetes, which is probably the most common medical malady that this is analogized with, you have to manage it. Now, there'll be some people who have situational depression who will never experience this again once they're able to leverage whatever aspects of self-care they can to get themselves out of that dark hole. Those of us who live with a more acute experience of this, we need to be keenly aware that the likelihood is there's going to be situations in which we're triggered, which is going to pull us back down, and there we need to leverage self-care even, even more. And the other part scientifically is there's more and more studies about the wonder of what they call the neuroplasticity of the mind in which self-care, not just medication, and I'm a huge fan, but again, attendance to body, mind, and spirit. The brain is so amazing that with this aspect of neuroplasticity, you can create new neuropathways, which literally creates new ways of thinking, which is one of the greatest defense against the monster. And again, it's important to note that there's a great number of people out there who fall into the categories, and I was one of those, especially with the life that I was blessed to lead before, who fall into the category of what they call smiling depressives or highly functioning depressives. So those are the souls in our lives in which on the outside, you have no idea. And then too far or too often, and I think the great Robin Williams is probably the epitome of, of the examples of this, where you were left scratching, how in the world does somebody like the great Robin Williams not know that he was worthy, that he had made a life-changing event in literally an incalculable number of people? How did he not know that? And so the fact that so many people, far more than are actually counted by the Mayo Clinic, there are so many people hiding who have a, a, an incredible place of despair and hopelessness every single day, and yet somehow in some way they're able to move along in life, not near what they were born to do, but they can vary with a heavy sense and a difficulty, put one foot in front of the other, but they're suffering. They're suffering greatly. So like me, we have no idea. And I think we, we need to be aware of that. That's one of the fundamental things that I try to share with people is we must broaden our awareness. We must, like that passerby, act on the intuitive senses that we get on a regular basis to not be afraid to ask a counterintuitive question. And if I look back, and I'll, I'll stop with this to, to give myself a chance to breathe, that first responder leveraged questions of what and how, didn't use why and when. And I'll share more on that if you like, but long-winded answer to your question, Frank, that's, that's what I will offer. Go into that, David, with the, the use of not saying why and when. So I think in, 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 let's just take these acute situations where you have somebody like me who's on the verge of killing themselves, of, of ending their life, which, which is important to note. That's the phrase for those of us who stand on, on the advocacy of this sort of thing to reduce the horrific numbers of suicides is to change the phrasing from a person committed suicide to a person killed themselves or a person ended their life. It, it has more, it creates a better space of, I think, for those who are left behind or those who want to understand this, it gives a little bit more flexibility than the more common phrase. I think any of us, 
when we are posed with a question of why, why are you doing this? Why did you do this? It makes, it's an automatic response for us to be defensive. And when we add in when, there is the stress of time. What and how are far more neutral. And what and how I believe, but not based on just my experience, but in speaking with other people, when I share this with the first responder and his brilliance, people agree that if somebody asks us a question about what was behind your movement, what was behind your decision, and then how does it feel? I think leveraging how to to create the space for somebody to share how they feel, which is unique in our culture. There may be other cultures that are a little bit better on this, but let's just talk about the United States. We don't talk about our feelings. And, and Frank, you and I at, at Midlife, our, our men, our brothers out there, we almost never talk about how we feel. The, our girlfriends, our wives, our spouses, our, our moms are constantly asking for us to share our feelings. And we have this misconception that if a man is to cry, if a man is to share the difficulty of how he feels, both the highs and the lows, he is less than a man. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. If we can create a question, leveraging what and how, and then just listen, listen, like Dr. Remen said, we create a sanctuary for the homeless parts and other people. I had a home that I lived in on August 31st, 2011, but on that dark spot on the Tall Tall Bridge, I was homeless. That man's listening created a home for me to ultimately get me to an emergency department and then to great psychiatric staff and a great psychiatric hospital that began this journey to this point. David, one of the things you and I both do is we talk to a lot of uh, adolescents and, and young people, young adults. And they're so sad and so depressed because their whole life is social and now they're isolated. So what do you say to them when they tell you, David, what's the use? The world is so divided. The world is so full of hatred. Why do we even bother? And, and the first thing that I do is not to jump to an affirmative statement. Not that that's a bad thing, but in my own experience, having stumbled my way through this, and having been on the receiving end of great guidance, great mentorship, and great counseling, is somebody once told me that if somebody shares something with you that is sacred, in which they trust you to share how they feel, especially when it's colored with the hue of despair or hopelessness, if we respond with an affirmative statement and there's nothing wrong with that, and I've done, I've done that and continue to do that on a regular basis, but this person coached me and said, David, next time... Ask a question in response to when somebody shares with you how, you how they feel. And I tried it one time, and then I came back to this coach, this mentor that I had, and I said, oh, that's amazing. Because I just shared, when they shared their place of despair, I said, tell me more about that. How does that feel? How has that impacted your life? How long have you lived with this situation? How does this color your everyday experience? And then he said, David, what, what was the net net of that? And I had to think about it for a long time. And he said, what was the difference between the times that you had offered affirmative statement and the times that you had offered a question? And I had to think, I'd say, Greg, I had to think about it a long time. And finally, it occurred to me when, in the middle of the night, I said, oh, my gosh, now I know what it is. 
is that when I offered an affirmative statement, it effectively ended the conversation. Again, not that that's, the statement's not wrong, but it, it curtailed that conversation. But when I asked the question, it continued the conversation, and the person had more of an opportunity to share. So when I meet, and I have the, the blessing to do this on a regular basis, with one of the, a teenager, and I just get them to talk about what's it like on their worst days, however they lived, how long have they lived with this situation, to give them the space to create this sacred opportunity for them to share. And here's, that's exactly what the first responder did. And at one point, though, like he, we need to pivot it. We don't want to leave somebody in a state of despair. It is, in fact, positive to allow them to speak to that. But at one point, we need to change the context of our questions, ideally for them to remember times of they when times when they felt hopeful, times when they felt uplifted, and pose the same questions as this, what's it like on your best days? What are the circumstances that are present when you feel best? And allow them to share. And that's I think now even more than ever, Frank, is when we encounter anybody across the age spectrum and because we're speaking about adolescents, and I agree with you hundred percent. They are so social that we need to give them a chance, even if it's Zoom, even if we're practicing social distancing in any way that we can communicate, is to allow them to speak of both their despair and to help bring presence presence for them to remember what was going on when they felt best. And one of the ways, again, that I have been taught to kind of prime the pump and allow them to speak vulnerably and intimately, especially if there's any kind of silence and, and we're not making any headway, is the classic reframing the question is, if you had a friend who was suffering with a similar set of circumstances, what would you say to them? And again, it primes That's the good. pump. It allows them to take one step back. They can relate to the circumstance because this hypothetical friend feels like them. What would they say? And it's interesting because oftentimes... The solutions are exactly the ones that we may offer. But if they can voice those, it's easy for them to see, like, wow. And it may take a little while. They may need to process that for a bit before it lands on them and have the same sort of epiphany I did between making a statement and asking a question. Now, my youngest daughter, David, I, I wish we had this come. I'd met you 10 years ago, 15 years ago. My youngest daughter is prone to depression. And so my glad. initial responses were always something affirmative, and the conversation ended. She just roll her eyes and walk away. Now I've learned, as a single parent of two daughters, I've learned stop doing that, and just to say, "How is it? How are you feeling? How long has this and, been going on? Right. When do you, when was the last time you felt good? What were you doing? That type right. of thing." And at least it, it, she at least is talking and opening up and very intelligent young woman, but I, it was going about it the wrong way. And, and all good intentions, obviously. Everybody has good intentions. We just go about it the wrong way. Well, and if I may, I'm going to tell you, to, to, so I teach, a, one of the courses I teach is, I don't know what to say, learning the language of mental health. Because I think language is so powerful. The great Rudyard Kipling said, words are, of course, 
the most powerful drug known to mankind. And they are. And I think on the spectrum, and, and we do, we talk about using curiosity, and then I go through a whole list of things that people who live with these maladies have said in terms of here's ideally what not to say, and then a whole list of things ideally what to say. The simplest two on both ends of the thing, I think the very worst thing that we can ever say to anybody, no matter what the circumstances is, especially when they share an experience, the very worst thing that we can say is, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> there could have been another middle-aged man standing right next to me on that bridge on August 31st, 2011, and I, the worst thing I could have said to that brother in that moment is, I know exactly how you feel, because I don't. We don't. On the other end of the spectrum, when we are at a loss of what to say, I think the, one of the best things that we can say is, I am so sorry you are having to live with this situation. And so I think understanding both ends of that, it can just free us up to, to be most helpful. Because the truth is, I, I think for me, this is what I live by, that connection creates hope and hope saves lives. And when we can connect with a person, if we can remember their name and become good at that, if we can leverage curiosity, if we can remember, especially now, Frank, the power of a handwritten note, somebody going to their mailbox here, we're being isolated for, for understandable reasons, and they go and there's that uniquely sized envelope, a handwritten note comes in a format, it's delivered in a shape that we know it's going to be something good, it's going to be an invitation to something, maybe going to be cash. Or somebody's going to tell us that we're good because the truth is we know if somebody thinks we're a butthead, <laughs> that <laughs> is a text. they're not going to write it on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it. So imagine in this place that you have somebody who you have an intuitive sense that may be suffering, be it a child or an adolescent or a parent or a grandparent, they go to the mailbox and they're like, wow, and that thing, and we know how that feels because we've all been on the receiving end. We do these small acts of connection if it reaches critical mass, and I'm, I'm optimistic it will, this will have us ride on the top of what many mental health professionals are predicting as a tsunami of mental health disorders that are coming our way. These sorts of acts of simple connection, which remind us that we are both capable and qualified, even if we don't have letters past our name, we can ride on the top of this wave and get to a point in the metaphor of the great arc to dry land once again. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take another break right here. This conversation is, is, is too good for you to miss. We're going to be back shortly with the last segment with David Woods. Bartley, do not miss this. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. 
When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Sakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We've had two just tremendous segments with David Woods, Bartley, and he is a gentleman who on August 31st, 2011, was standing at the top of a 730-foot bridge and was planning to commit suicide. And he was saved and stopped by a first responder who reached out to him. And from that point forward, David has become an advocate for mental health and suicide prevention. Now, to that end, I am a shameless promotion here. I am honored to be one of the speakers at the four-day it's called the Woman Entrepreneur Show. And we're going to be discussing how imagination is more important than intelligence for business success. I'm on on the Friday the 22nd at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Western Time, California Time. If you want more information, go to the womanentrepreneurshow.com for details on how to register. Now, all the money, all the money raised is going to go to the Teen Suicide Prevention and we're very proud of that, and I'm very proud to have David Woods Bartley here, who spends his life since that day in 2011 helping people address the monster of clinical depression. Now, David, when you and I met, we met with two other very close friends of ours, and a reference to scripture came up, and it had to do with faith, hope, and love. And when people say, which one's the most important, everybody says, why, it's love. And you said, no, I vehemently disagree with that. Tell us why. You know, and it's, it's the second Corinthians scripture that we've all heard in every single wedding that we go to. And it was written by St. Paul. And it says, of faith, hope, and love, which is the most important. And, and St. Paul said it was love. And, and I disagree. Not that that's not a great scripture. And, and who am I to, to argue with? Saint, but if we add, a, for me, it's no one has died for lack of, of love, and I think love has a difficulty to it. And, and again, I think if we're if we're honest, we you would agree with me that love can be fickle, love can play hide and seek, love can be present and then invisible. Faith, on the other hand, is intimidating. 
you know, and, and we're told that we only need chase the size of a mustard seed, but that's good because it's intimidating. It almost has the, the presence of a rock star. It's, I think it's the, we can feel unworthy because we never will develop another faith, and we can also be filled with shame, which is the, the monster's liquid that he wants us to drink from because we don't, there are times when we're lacking faith. Hope, Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, says that happiness is a warm puppy. Well, I would say hope is like a whole herd of warm puppies. And if I think about hope is, is not fickle. Hope just wants this relationship with us. And another scripture that comes up is people will perish for lack of vision. People will perish for lack of hope. That's what kills people. And that's why in reverse engineering, the problem, it's connection creates hope. And when two or more are gathering, and I say this in the most secular sense, to, to do maybe a, a different interpretation, and we know this, when we, especially those of us who live with this right now, and especially with the current circumstances in which there is forced isolation, I'm not saying that from a place of judgment, when there's forced isolation, that's what the monster wants, that's his perfect battleground. Because the monster cannot deal with the presence of connection. Because he's really, you know, he's a bully. And if he can get you alone, that's when he can do damage. But when there are two of us, or three of us, or four of us, in some supportive aspect, we're going to turn the tables on this this bastard, if you'll allow me, and whip his butt. And that's why I think hope is so essential. Love is good. Faith is powerful. But it's all about hope. Now, I love your point about hope and connections. And as people, one of the things with this teen suicide, where I'm speaking on Friday, is to get to the questions and have the conversation before the dark thoughts start to enter. Now, I know you teach a class on that. What do you do? What do you say? And it's just, I really think that the, the first thing is, you know, we are all, women more so, they have a, a greater reference to it, we're all blessed with the gift of intuition. And I think what happens is we oftentimes won't dismiss that. My beloved mother, Suzanne, who passed away four years ago, she had a, a number of great sayings, but one was moderation is the key, everything in balance. But the other, she probably said even more times in, in her great talks to her youngest son, B, she say, sweetheart, follow your gut. You know, we have this, and we understand now the whole brain-gut relationship and all these other things, but we have this intuition. And be it our own child or somebody else's, if we slow down enough, it's important for us to, one, connect with the intuitive sense and then respond. Don't dismiss it. And I think it goes back to this whole aspect of understanding because behavior oftentimes makes no sense. And I'll tell a short version of, of one of the animal stories that I use we had a great number of waterfowl, and one of the geese that came to the sanctuary was named Adia, A-D-I-A, which is Swahili for beautiful. He was a, a big African goose. So imagine like a swan-sized goose, but, but adorned with this beautiful black and brown coloring. So we had this great pond in the back, back pasture where all of the, the geese and the ducks would go. And when Adia came on that day, Frank, instead of moving into the pond instead of embracing that which had been created for him, the ideal circumstance, he stood on the edge and instead jumped in this small bathtub-sized water trough. And I remember thinking, dude, 
what's up? Why would you swim in this small water trough in the confines, which are so restrictive, instead of moving towards that which was created for you? People act in a certain way. They say a certain thing. They dress a certain way. They, they resist going to therapy, considering medication, participating in a support group, talking to us. Why would they do that? And there's where why. Why makes no sense. And so I scooped him up out of the water trough. I put him right back on that edge again, expecting him to move into the pond, and yet he jumped back in the water trough. And now we did this 10 times. And I move from, wow, that's a little curious to, okay, now I'm getting agitated, now I'm frustrated, now I'm bordering on anger. And here's where the brilliance of my former bride, Deanna, came in. She came upon the situation, asked me to please, honey, calm down, and said to me, maybe there's something we don't know about Adia. Maybe there's something we don't know about the teens who are acting in a certain way. Maybe there's just something we don't know. And so Deanna went in, made a couple phone calls and said, sweetheart, guess what I found out? She says, Adia had been a suburban goose. Adia had lived his whole life in the small confines of somebody's backyard. Adia had only ever swum in a kiddie pool. And I remember thinking, oh my God, well, of course. He can't even fathom this, the enormity of a pond it's not even in his consciousness. People can't even fathom sitting with a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. They can't even fathom that because they have no relation. We need to give them this initial entryway. And I remember at that point, I literally sat down on the edge of the pond. Adia's in the water trough to my left. The other geese and the ducks are in this big pond. And here's the beauty of understanding. In that moment a solution came to me that was not available when I was in the place of misunderstanding. When I was adorned with the clothing of judgment, I said to myself, dude, I can just get a second water trough. Adia can have one, and the horses and the goats and the sheep, everybody else who drinks from the water trough, they can have a second. But that answer is not available unless I'm in the place of understanding. It's given to me by my former beloved. Five minutes later, Adia steps out of the water trough walks around and sits down next to me on my right-hand side in this amazing once-in-a-lifetime experience. Five minutes after that, he stands up, walks to the edge of the water of the pond, looks out with this incredible intensity at the geese and the ducks in the pond, looks over at the water top, looks back at me, then eyes front, steps forward and swims into the pond. Understanding not only gives us rise and space to create solutions, but it also is like an energetic vortex in which it creates this smooth pathway at an individual's pace to move into that which is in their best interest, that which they're created to, that which is their birthright, in this case, which is mental health. That's an incredible story. And I see so many cases where we put our own value or what we think is the right thing onto somebody else before we understand what their situation is. That's very powerful, David. Powerful story. No, now, me. Yeah. Go ahead, David. No, I was going to say, and I think it circles back to, again, Frank, and I do this even now. I catch myself. It's those instances when the words go out of my mouth and I want to catch it. No, that with all good intention, 
to say, I know exactly how you feel, because we don't. We, we truly, we don't understand, especially when, when, when it's at the extremes, we don't understand what's going on. And the only way that we will arrive at that place of understanding, we must leverage curiosity. Thomas Berger wrote a great book called Little Big Man, and he said, the art and science of asking questions is the source of all knowledge. That is a great quote. That is a great quote. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we only have about two minutes left. David, what last words do you want to share with people who are suffering from this, from the monster? What's your words of encouragement to them? I say, brothers and sisters who are out there, just please, 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 please hold on. Things change. They do. And if, if my life can be saved, any life can be saved. And I'm not saying that again because I know how you feel. I don't know your circumstances. I can relate. I can appreciate. I can empathize. I might even be able to, on my best days, understand. But what's important for all of us to know, and I'm really speaking to myself as well, is this thing, those instances of deep and dark depression don't last forever. They don't. I have a great friend who said it so much more poetically for me that the the monster creates a situation where when we're in that darkest place of despair, we forget that, in fact, at times we, have, we feel better. In other words, we, we will come out of that. And the other part, though, that my friend Greg says, when we're feeling good, we forget that there's a likelihood that we may, we may those of us who live with more extremes of this, dip down into those dark troughs again. So I'm saying, please... Please reach out. Please be receptive that things can be better. Do whatever you can to initiate connection with other people. Try to surround yourselves with those, even if it's one person that you feel like you could say to them, I just need to share. I don't need absolutely the case, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Reach out. Don't I, don't hide reach out, ask for help. David, thank you so much for being on today. Frank, thank you for the honor and the privilege. Thanks for what you're doing. It has been one of the watershed moments in my life. Now, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what life throws at you, I say this every week, do three things. Look up, get up, never, ever give up. Pick up the pieces and start moving forward. Once again, I want to thank the sponsor for this show, the Tag Team, which is a collaboration between Jay Abraham and Life Altering Event to help the next generation of businesses thrive. If you would like more information about David or any of our other guests, send me an email. I'll make sure it gets to him. If you missed any of this show or any of our other shows, you can listen to them on demand on any number of, of hundreds of places, now including iHeartRadio, Google, and Alexa, and my website, frankzakari.com. Now, let me leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen. None of us are in this alone. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And today, David showed us where many of those rocks are. Join me again next week as we discuss another life-altering event. Thank you for tuning into Life Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life changing week. The Good Cup.